Hello, beloved listeners. This is Adrian, and you're listening to How to Survive the End of the World, a podcast about surviving apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. I am Adrian Marie Brown, a writer, lover of miracles and life, and scholar of love. And I'm currently paying rent in Detroit, which I have returned to after 10 months of being in transit. Um, And we wanted to be in a new practice, new old practice of also naming the territory, the occupied territory that we are on and functioning from. So for this episode, I'm introducing to you that Detroit is on Anishinaabe territory. And I want to bring you into this week's episode, which is a little different. Um, First of all, Autumn had some family business that she needed to attend to and was not able to join us for this particular conversation, which has a very specific timing and a very specific way that it happened, which is very exciting. Um, So I'm steering this ship on my own, but it's a Detroit ship through Detroit waters, and I think that it works out okay. Um, Last week, the show that we got to do was a part of the Detroit Podcast Festival, and I got to interview two incredible, incredible visionary dreamers in Detroit. P.G. Watkins is one of the original members of the BYP 100 chapter in Detroit and has gone on to create the 313 Liberation Zone. I also got to experience their incredible work through the Detroit Narrative Agency. And PG is just a dear friend and a beloved um, who's going to come and talk to you about justice. And then Amanda Alexander is coming on who, um, when Amanda moved to Detroit, it was like a ripple wave of thrill and excitement that people were like, "Uh, someone new is here who we desperately need. And she created something called the Detroit Justice Center, which is outstanding, doing really brave, incredible, brilliant, amazing work. And we thought that it would be really beautiful to create a conversation between these two people who are both approaching abolition and transformative justice, punitive justice, like the ideas of how we hold each other in community through these massive changes and times with visionary eyes and visionary hearts. So that's what our team is up to. That's what we have on offer for you today. I hope that you enjoy it. The first voice you hear will be Amanda. I am Amanda Alexander. I am a daughter, a sister, an auntie. Um, I am an organizer at heart. So I came into movement work about 20 years ago and was lucky enough to be trained up by ACT UP New York and ACT UP Philadelphia organizers. Yes. It taught me everything about you know, how to make change, um, how to um, force the change that you want to see in the world. And um, later on, I would uh, you know, become a historian and a lawyer. Um, a reluctant lawyer, but <laughs> trying to figure out how legal tools can be used in service of movements. And more recently, I'm the founder of the Detroit Justice Center. And today I am good, I am excited, I'm coming off with some really good conversations today um, with lawyers and organizers in the work. So just feeling energized. That's great. I didn't even know you could be a reluctant lawyer. Like I thought you just had to be enthusiastic to make it through the process. Um, And I also want to say for those who can't see you, 
black don't crack. Like when someone says they've been doing something for 20 years and then you look at their face, then it's just an exciting thing to realize that blackness is so wonderful to us. PG, who are you and how are you? Hey, what up though? I'm PG. Um, I use they, them pronouns. I am from Detroit. I am an organizer. I'm a facilitator. I've started calling myself like an organizational strategist. And like part of that is because of like my degree in organizational development and also partly (laughs) because of a lot of the work that I've been doing to support strategy and visioning and planning for organizations in Detroit and around the country. I'm a direct action trainer um, and a direct action practitioner. So a lot of what I'll be talking about today with 313LZ is a lot of like some of my wildest dreams about how we can do direct action in Detroit coming to life. Um, And yeah, I'm just feeling, I was feeling nervous, but you know, nervous and excited are very similar. So, you know, we could call it excited. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I'm feeling, but I'm feeling really good. I've had this past week pretty much to be out of the city, to be Mm. buy some water, in some water and buy Mm. some trees and shit. So that's been lovely. So I feel very grounded and centered. Right yeah. And ready oh, for that's such a gift. That's such a gift. Yeah. Black continuously doesn't crack all the way over in PG's realm as well. And I'm also um, young though. Like I'm a little baby compared, like, you know, you, in, like, you are t- technically young. Yes. That's fine. You can, <laughs> you can throw that back at us. Um, we are old and we all look the same age, so it's all good. <laughs> like, it's great. Um, so beloveds, I'm so grateful that you're both here. Um, something that we have been adding to the show lately um, for this season, we're testing it out because we're both angry <laughs> about so many things. And our show generally is like, let's survive and be optimistic and hopeful and happy. But we're like, but what do we do with this rage? So we've been making room on the show to release a little bit of rage, just like a flume of rage. Let it out. What? what? The flume of rage. The flume of rage! <laughs> I'd love to, I'll start off and then if y'all have something that you want to add to the flume of rage, you can. Um, I, my anger, my rage this week is I've reached the point and I think because I was out of country and like away for a lot of this year, I'm late in reaching the point. I probably would have reached it earlier, but I've reached the point in the electoral process where I feel completely enraged about how much attention the election cycle demands from us for so little return. And it hits me like every time we're doing this, because I'm just like, yeah, we need to vote. It is one of the many strategies we need to engage in order to move towards justice. It's not the central strategy. It's not the most effective strategy. It's just to me, the bare minimum, <laughs> you know, I'm like, bare minimum, we vote. It's, you know, the way that we can shape these policies and shape who's around. But the amount of time and effort it gets, you would think that it was going to actually save our lives, save our communities, and make things significantly better. And every time I feel like we play the game that way, as if it's like, going to suddenly become this political home that can meet our needs. And I'm like, y'all, just vote. And like, let's keep it moving, you know? Um, And I'm happy for those people who are doing significant voter organizing. I'm uplifting voter guides and stuff like that. But it's like trying to watch anything else on television. I'm like, y'all, 
the amount of attention should be, if it was commensurate with the outcomes, I would be down. I'd be like, yes, this is the most important thing that ever existed. So I start to feel that boiling up rage feeling. And I'm like, I'm done with all the attention, especially the attention that we're giving to someone who we know is not, um, not worthy. I think that's the best way I can say it. Not worthy. Yeah. So what about y'all? Flume of rage. You can share that flume of rage with me. If you have another thing that's just like, I'm angry. <laughs> I have one. You have one? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So mine, I think similar, but maybe not, but it is about the attention we're giving things like uh-huh. y'all last week, a few days ago, something, they tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Like that was a legit thing that happened. Like a plan of action to kidnap the governor. Damn near did it. Would have tried her for treason in Wisconsin or some shit. Like, and it just seemed like nobody was paying attention to the fact that that almost happened. And like, yes, maybe it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to people, but for me, it just truly exemplifies like, y'all, we really our expectations for what's bad have gotten so (laughs) distorted, you know, our expectations for what's worthy of being upset about, like, like, wow, (laughs) y'all, what? And then just even thinking about the ways, so the FBI infiltrated their organizations and like knew about that planning. And if they're doing that for these white people, Oh, you know. you know what they're doing to us in our movements. You just can, I could just know that even more closely if I I already did. And also like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just remember being in that, uh, I was traveling and I was watching the news and it just, there was also sports on either TV. And I'm just like, <laughs> no, <laughs> like, no, this is wild. This is wild right now. Nobody else That's right. was, you know, and not nobody else, but it didn't feel like people were feeling that with me. So That's great. that was making me really angry. Arr. Great. <laughs> what about you, Amanda? I would say mine, it's this uh, familiar mix of just like sad and angry. I mean, about mostly the COVID spiking again. Oh, yeah. I feel like I talked to so many friends this week who had felt like they were reaching some kind of equilibrium in terms of figuring out how to school kids at home, you know, just figuring out enough of a rhythm and already having enough overwhelm. And then suddenly all of those plans being upended because of things spiking yes. then and folks dealing with, you know, so much grief and loss, um, feeling like it was, you know, way back in March and April again. And just knowing, I mean, the rage comes yeah. in because it did not have to be this way. It doesn't have you know, the to The fact be that there was a super spreader in the White House <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and just, just knowing that all of this, all of this didn't need to happen. No, I keep, I, I, found this quote that I said back in 2018, maybe even 2017, that was like, if we tried to write this as fiction, it would sound hyperbolic. Mm -hmm. Like you, no one would believe us if you're like, yeah, so we get this virus, right? And like almost everywhere else in the world, they're able to get it, you know, to like shut down and slow down and figure it out. But in the U.S., which has the most resources of any place, (laughs) in the U.S., the president gets it because he encourages people for months to not wear masks, to drink bleach, and to go to parties and to come to his rallies. You, like, like, I would be like, no, this is a bad script. 
This right. is a bad script. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it's not believable. Zombies would be more believable. But no, we have a zombie super spreader in the White House. So, yes, as Solange says, we got a lot to be mad about. The thing that always gives me, if not hope, then a sense of, oh, I, we can make it. We're going to be okay. Like, things will still fall into place. In spite of this rage, there's something that is balancing, counterbalancing this rage. The two of you are those like lights in the sky for me. Like you're part of the constellation that helps me look up and forward. And I really want people to understand your work as it relates to this moment. So um, let's start with you, Amanda. Can you share, a little bit about what the, when the Detroit Justice Center started and what is it this project is trying to do in the world? Sure, so we are two and a half years old now. Uh, we're still oh. a new organization. Uh, we opened in <laughs> April 2018, but uh, I'll back up. So uh, uh-huh. I am originally from Michigan, um, you know, born in Southfield, grew up on the west side of the state in Plainwell actually, where one of the would-be kidnappers is from. <gasps> Yeah, that's a, that's a whole other conversation, y'all. But uh, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> uh, so I, you know, lived elsewhere. I was out, out of Michigan for 12 years, um, was in New York and South Africa and uh, went to law school. And then in 2013, moved to Detroit. And um, that was, I mean, I know that you will both remember, um, that was the year when Detroit filed the largest ever municipal bankruptcy it was yes. there when I you know, moved and was not living under a democracy because we had, Governor Snyder had appointed an emergency financial manager. Um, there was all of this talk about you know, the future of the city and the future of Detroit. And uh, the New York Times would keep discovering it as like the last stop on the L train and all these horrible narratives <laughs> out there. And so uh, I had uh, moved to Detroit and as a new attorney was running something called the Prison and Family Justice Project at Michigan Law School. And so I was uh, representing incarcerated parents who are at risk of losing their uh, kids permanently um, to the foster Mm. system, was working with clients who uh, were involved in the court system and that was threatening to break up their families. And so- A few things uh, were very clear to me in that time. Um, The first was that the families that I was working with, all of their concerns were not part of the mainstream conversation about the future of the city. So, you know, people, the conversation about safety in the city was all about making downtown hospitable for young white people to come down and work for uh, Dan Gilbert at Quicken Loans. Yep. Um, it was all, you know, none of it was about the clients I was serving who were making choices between taking a collect call from a loved one in prison upstate or putting groceries on the table. Or, you know, um, I had a client who I was trying to get her kids back out of foster care, but had to get some traffic warrants cleared first and had to get a payment plan with the court first in order to do that. It's like, this was the stuff that people were dealing with. Um, It was not part of the conversation about who got to belong in the city going forward. Mm. The other thing that was clear was that Detroit was home to some of the most visionary organizing on the planet. Um, And so, uh, you know, the fact that we experienced the bottoming out of American capitalism meant that people had also been uh, incredibly imaginative in terms of the solutions that they were coming up with. So 
grocery stores left, but people didn't want to leave, but they wanted to feed themselves. And so people right. like Alicia Keeney and Detroit Black Community Food Security Network uh, created a, a you know, whole urban agriculture infrastructure that's decades ahead of the curve. Um, yes. You know, there's 40% uh, of Detroiters don't have access to the internet. And what do folks do? Detroit Community Technology Project creates mesh <laughs> networks, you know, and trains people up in digital stewardship. And across the board, you have the Bog School creating place-based education to root young mm -hmm. people and what it means to be in beloved community. Like just so many incredible, incredible um, social experiments happening by longtime residents. And uh, what frustrated me was that not, you know, the mayor and others we're not valuing the wisdom of this. And not only that, right. they're pushing them out. Um, right. So, you know, folks like urban farmers, their land was valuable to developers suddenly. And so yes. you know, they, they, these experiments were under threat. Um, the last thing that was really clear was that uh, the Movement for Black Lives, which came on the scene in 2013, was mm -hmm. offering this vision um, to mm -hmm. the world. And so um, young black organizers were meeting this moment and not just saying, you know, stop killing us. They were saying fun black futures. Let's yes. fight for what we need to thrive and offering this affirmative vision. And so it was really clear to me that people like PG, um, other folks in BYP 100, Black Lives Matter, Greenlight Black Futures here in Detroit, they were offering a vision of what we needed to fight for and lawyers are falling short, <laughs> you know? So, so right. lawyers are still stuck right. in what worked 40, 50 years ago. Um, you know, it's That's saying, right. you know, who do we sue? And it was very clear. It's like, we're not gonna sue our way out of yeah. systemic racism, colonialism. And so how could lawyers match the power of organizers? Mm -hmm. And so I was part of um, steering the National Law for Black Lives Network to figure out how do we stand with and protect the movement and then the Detroit Justice Center grew out of that work. And Beautiful. so um, just a couple of years ago when we opened, the model was one of defense, offense, and dreaming under one roof. Great. And so the defensive piece, you know, we house a bail fund. We bailed out hundreds of people from the Wayne County Jail um, in the last couple of years. Our attorneys help people stay out of jail and prison, uh, maintain you know, the rights to their children, deal with fines, fees, tickets, warrants, all of that stuff. Yes. Um, our uh, economic equity practice goes on offense. So we have attorneys who are helping people create community land trust and worker cooperatives, and basically helping to shore up all of these freedom dreams of longtime Detroit organizers. And then we have a Just Cities Lab, which is where we dream and encourage other people to dream with us. Um, where we're really holding space for imagination around abolition and uh, supporting actual pilot uh, projects um, for what abolition looks like in practice. So we're supporting work around restorative justice, transformative justice, supportive housing for people healing from gun violence and things mm. like that. Oh, it's so dreamy. It's so perfect. And as you're speaking, um, there's this framework from Movement Generation they, it's a three circles model and they talk about how, you know, right now we are living inside of false solutions because false solutions are what we're told is the only thing that's possible politically, mm -hmm. but there's always what we need, the third center, right? The third, third circle. And we're constantly trying to figure out how do we make that third circle politically possible and it just feels like your work is essentially that, right? It's like recognizing that suing the, trying to sue everybody out of capitalism 
is not, that's a false solution. It's not going to get us where we need to go. So thank you for your vision and your labor and also being able to make the connection to all those tangible pieces of support that people actually need in order to move towards these massive visions. So that's very Black Panther-esque, Black Panther of you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So PG, weave yourself into this. Tell me, um, when did your project start? And you can give us a long tail because I know it's like many projects that have sort of moved, moved, moved. And what is your project trying to do? Yeah, okay, for sure. So um, so I'm here to talk about 313 Liberation Zone, which is right. um, something that just started this summer in this uh, moment of uprising, uh, but definitely grew out of work that a lot of us have been doing in the city before that. Um, I helped to start the Black Youth Project 100, BYP 100 chapter in Detroit in 2015. And mostly because as a Black queer thinking I was trans, maybe not sure person, I was like, none of these organizing groups are for me. None of these organizing groups really yeah. care about me. None of these organizing groups um, respect me. And that was just mm-hmm. real. Like, you know, I was a part of other um, organizing initiatives at, in the Movement for Black Lives moment that Amanda was talking about in 2013, 2014, 2015, of like, um, similar to what we're seeing now folks on the streets, organizations forming, you know, people trying to figure out what their roles are. Um, I was activated then and was, uh, yeah, just really disappointed in a lot of ways. Uh, Found out about BYP 100 while I was briefly, very briefly living in in DC because I thought I was going to go to law school and I (laughs) did not start. Um, (laughs) uh, So I was in DC for a few months met some folks with BYP 100, was on the mailing list, went to one thing, didn't really go to anything else, like was still trying to just navigate the city in a lot of ways. Um, but moved back to Detroit, um, went to the Movement for Black Lives convening in Cleveland in 2015 and got to actually wow. meet Charlene Carruthers, who was the first national director of BYP 100 and a lot of other BYP 100 members from around the country. And like me and my friend Kevin literally talked to Charlene and was just like, yo, so we are trying to do something like this in Detroit. What's up? What do we need to do? Um, and yeah, she came. Charlene is the one. Okay. And she was just like, well, we can come. It was like one. July. And she was like, we can come there in September. Like, what's up? Like, you yes. know, give y'all a couple months to get it together. So anyways, fast forward. That started. Beautiful experiment. Challenging. Stretched my nerves. <laughs> and all, <laughs> in all the ways. Um, and then this summer happened. Um, yeah. And, you know, we've been fighting for years against the police in Detroit, against uh, the surveillance project, Project Greenlight. And this moment just felt like another opportunity to assert, like, what it is we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. Um, Unfortunately, it's something that we're also learning, the folks that are part of 313LZ, we're experiencing and learning is, like, formalized organizational structures aren't always the way to get things done that you want to get done. You know, people were trying, we were trying to really throw down. We was trying to really do some civil disobedience some radical action. And you know, there's a lot of checks and balances in in good ways in like Mm. organizational structures. And then (laughs) we are a group of niggas that want to do something. Can we just say we want to do it? Great. Let's do it. (laughs) And so that's That's pretty much what happened. Um, one of my comrades, Rosie, uh, had posted something on Instagram. Like if you're a young black person in Detroit who's trying to do some civil disobedience and like you're disappointed with the t- ways that actions have been going, <laughs> you know, uh, some long little thing. It's like, hit me up. 
And I hit them up, other people hit them up, we met up together and we we're just like, okay, y'all, what are we gonna do? Like, what's up, what are people interested in? Um, and the very first thing we did together was an occupation on Juneteenth, uh, 15 hours, we stayed in Spirit Plaza, uh, kicked the city out of Spirit Plaza. They were trying to do their uh, Juneteenth event and we got there earlier than them and I'd already set hey! up and we told them they could not have their event there um, and that we were gonna have our event. Yeah. Um, and they really tried to make us move. The police tried to make us move. We're like, nah, we're just going to stay. You know what I mean? We already got our stuff here. You know, we're good. We'll stay. We'll be here all day. You can come back Precious. and see us or whatever. <laughs> um, so that was, a, that was beautiful. And so essentially, through and through Liberation Zone are these uh, cop-free autonomous occupations and activations that allow for space for Black joy and resistance and education. Mm. So we do a lot of talking about police abolition, what does it mean, what does it look like, true safety in our communities, how do people get their basic needs met. We always have some type of mutual aid efforts that are a part of our gatherings, whether that's just through like a free store and like community care products that people can just take um, or through like having mutual aid networks present and like offering different things. Um, so yeah, we did yeah. that in, on Juneteenth, we did that day long joint. Um, about a month later, month-ish later, we did another civil disobedience in front of Belle Isle and like blocked off the Belle Isle Bridge uh, for a couple of hours, demanding like, you know, Belle Isle for people, maybe people who are not from Detroit. Belle Isle right. is um, an island off the city. It, it is, is a park um, that recently became a state park. So it's no right. longer like a city park. Um, it's patrolled by like state police and all these, and border patrol and like all these other jurisdictions. Um, and we know that in Detroit, uh, Belle is also historically a, a Black gathering space, a Black yes. place uh, for, or a place for Black folks in the city to gather for family reunions, for parties, for random chilling. For driving your car around, blasting music at the okay, top you know of what the, I mean? like, <laughs> and I'm like, yes. You know, like, no. that's our space. And what did they do? They started policing it more heavily, right? Mm -hmm. they, they said, okay, actually, we care about this space now because we want to invest some money in it. Y'all can't be here doing the same things y'all were doing. Um, and at the same time, more money going into policing at, on Belle Isle, but also in the city as a whole, money coming out of parks and rec, money coming out of schools. Um, and so, yeah, we blocked off the bridge on Jefferson um, and, and had another liberation zone. Folks were playing basketball mm -hmm. and, and four square and... Uh, do, had like a boxing coach out there who was doing like pad work with people like we were chilling we just, wow this is the space we actually need we need space that's just us having fun living our lives like teaching each other about things that maybe we didn't know about before um and we need that done by us for us um so then the most we did another action uh six mile in san juan to honor the the killing of hakeem littleton who was shot by police mm. this summer um and to talk about the ways that for hakeem who was uh, killed and his killing was justified by both the police and a lot of folks in community in Detroit because oh, he had wow. a gun, because he yeah. shot at the police, didn't actually shoot nobody, um, but got executed in the street. Um, and we just had, an, we had another liberation zone, another event to talk about the importance of investing in black youth, black children, and the, this idea that like the police are the violent ones. We, we are not violent, they are violent. Right. Um, Okay, and then the last thing we just did was like last weekend or a couple weekends ago, we yes. did uh, this five-day liberation festival, which was exhausting, but beautiful. <laughs> and <laughs> it, was, it was like five days of basically all types of activities. We had 
workshops about how do you start a block club? What do you, what is uh, cooperative ownership? Um, what is dual power? And like, how do we build dual power in the city? Uh, we had like a movie screening and talks about police abolition and a DJ and bonfires and like free food all day, a free store all day, like just opportunities <sighs> for community to engage from like Thursday to Monday. Um, and I heard a lot of feedback from people in that neighborhood that were just like, yo, like, who are y'all? Why y'all doing this? Y'all students or something? <laughs> and it's just like, nah, we're just people. We people, we live here. Like that was down the street pretty much from where I live. I'm like, we live over here. We care about y'all. We just want y'all to know what's up. We want mm. y'all to have what you need. Like we just want to practice and embody what liberation might feel like in our bodies for a little bit, just for a little bit to understand right. what that might be. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I think that that puts together like why we started what we started doing and what we're trying nice. to do. Um, yeah, we truly believe that a liberated Detroit looks like a Detroit without police. A liberated Detroit looks like a Detroit where people are self-determining, where like people have a, the agency and autonomy to decide what they want to do and how they mm -hmm. want to do it. And we also know that that's complicated and messy and not a, just a one step thing. Like tomorrow we're going to vote all the police out and that's right. it. Right. We know that there are steps that create the actual safety we want to see. We know that there is work that all of us have to do personally, individually, that we have to do in our interpersonal relationships and that we have to do as a fuller community in order for us to actually realize the safety that we want. Um, so we're just trying to practice that a little bit. See what's up. Mm. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. It's so nourishing to hear all of these things, PG. And, you know, I really, as you're speaking, I'm like, to me, this is the essence of why direct action is so important and so impactful. When you're like, let can we cut through all the bullshit? Can we cut through all this five-year strategic plans? Can we cut through all this stuff and actually be it now? Do it now. Like, take the power now and give ourselves, as you said, just a taste of what it would be like to be liberated and how would we operate as a liberated people, right? How, you know, how would we orient to being in the street? How would we orient to teaching each other, caring for each other, giving, right? I love how, how quickly generosity comes to the top of the, the list, right? Of like what's possible for us as a people when we are liberated, generosity. We want yes. to have free stores and free lessons and free skill shares and free space and free play. And I just, I love the work of it. And it feels like such a, you know, of course I'm like, it's pleasure activism, but it, it feels like such a pleasurable way to meet the pressure cooker of this summer is to be like, actually, we're gonna do direct actions where we embody our vision. And it's just beautiful. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for sharing that with us. And you actually, you know, my next question is like, what is your vision for justice in Detroit and how are you moving that vision forward in this year? So I feel like you really just spoke to what that vision is. And so could you give us, you know, if there's anything else you wanna to add to that, can you also give us a little taste of like, what's next for 313 with Liberation Zones? Is it, additional actions, you know, as you're heading into winter, you know, like, what is it, what are the liberation zones look like in cold ass snowy Detroit? <laughs> yeah, that was literally something that we were talking about, like, yo, what does a Michigan COVID winter look like with yep. direct action and civil disobedience outside? Yikes. Seriously. Uh, don't have a good answer to that right now. <laughs> we're still thinking about it. Um, but we do know that it's something we want to continue doing. Um, and not just for the sake of doing it, like legit people have told us 
how much it means to them what we're doing, right? People who yes. had no idea who we were just kind of came up to us, whether it was on Juneteenth or at Belle Isle or at Six Mile or at this thing at uh, General Baker Institute. Like people are just letting us know, like, we want this. We need this. Yeah. This is a beautiful experiment. And like, when is it happening again? <laughs> um, and so it's definitely something we want to continue experimenting with we know we want to continue pushing the envelope especially going into budget season here in Detroit when it's actually when we talk about defunding the police like this is the time to be in their faces about defunding and, and tangibly uh, lowering their budget um, That's right. so yeah there's a lot at stake and we know that and so we want to continue to try to practice together and be with each other right. um, but yeah no real answer yet on what that looks like like we're still I think trying to to understand yeah. it, understand all the That's dynamics. Great. Yeah. I mean, you know, with my little organization, like emergent strategist hat, I'm like, beautiful. That's perfect. <laughs> like that's exactly <laughs> where you should be after a dynamic right, exactly. summer of action. It's like now you, um, you know, in the same way that nature teaches us, it's like, okay, now you get to hibernate, reflect dormant, and figure out like, go dormant, like, you know, that doesn't mean you're not, you're creating underground. So good yep. for y'all. Um, and Amanda, what about for y'all? Like, what is the vision for justice in Detroit that y'all are moving? You know, like when you look ahead, what does that look like? And how are y'all moving it this, this year? Yeah, uh, the last couple of years, we've been trying to just do a lot of listening to people about what their visions are and holding space mm -hmm. for people to uh, vision together. So a couple of years ago now, uh, we held a youth design summit uh, okay. where we asked young people what would you build instead of a jail? Like Wayne County is trying wow. to spend $533 million on a new jail. And how could we spend that in a way that would make you feel safe and valued mm. and empowered? And so we pulled together the summit of some of the most kick-ass youth organizers in the city um, with 482 Forward and Teen Hype and other um, teens who had already been doing work around restorative justice. And we spent the day and they were um, designing, came up with actual renderings and their ideas were incredible. Um, of course they were. Uh -huh. you know, not one young person said that we need more police for more jails, not one. And instead right. they said things like, we need a mental health spa. When this girl uh -huh. said, we are like, what is that? That sounds amazing. <laughs> Teach me. <laughs> I'm like, I want that now. Right now. <laughs> like today. You know, I'm mm -hmm. like, it's, this, it's a building where on the first floor you go in and there's individual therapy where you can talk through just whatever is making you anxious. On the mm. second floor, you can have group conversations. On the third floor, you go up to the roof and you look at the, at, at the Detroit River and oh. a sense of just uh, calm. And um, so that was one space that they wanted. They said, pay our teachers. Mm. They said, fix the water pipes in our schools. Yes, please. They wanted affordable housing um, that was accessible. One voice said, I, we, we need affordable housing and it has to be accessible for my mom's wheelchair. You know, it's just like the way that they were thinking about people's needs and trusting that no one was disposable. Um, That's right. It, it was so powerful. And so, um, you know, I think the, the goal is to like keep holding space for those types of visions and also knowing right. that like we have the power and we can build the power to actually build those things instead. Um, That's right. So we crunched some of the numbers at the Detroit Justice Center and show that like for the cost of that jail or for the cost of the, Oof. which we spent over $300 million a year on, we could build all those things and more, you know, we could house oh, yeah. 
every person without housing in Detroit. We could, um, yes. you know, we could renovate and modernize all of the DPS schools. And this is just a political choice <laughs> to be spending it exactly. on prosecuting and caging people. And so, exactly. Um, and so, you know, we've been continuing to do this work of, you know, hold, uh, holding space for people to just be able to imagine something different. And it's so interesting because I feel like as soon as you ask people the question, their imaginations fire off and everyone's an abolitionist, <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. Exactly. Right I do not I care if people like, self-identify <laughs> with that or how they feel about the term, but I'm like, but if you know, then what we need is healthcare and I know. <laughs> okay. I know. This is how I always end up laughing because I'm like, so like, if, I'm like, if we strip away the words, but we just listen to what you're saying, you're a socialist abolitionist. Okay, right. cool. Right, I mean, right. we don't have to, you can call yourself whatever, but as long as yeah, we're on the same page. Okay. Right, right. Um, the thing, it was across, I mean, it's across the state too. Exactly. I, mean, I, I was serving on this um, governor's task force over the past year on jail and pretrial incarceration. And we listened yeah. to across the state, um, Traverse City to Lansing to Grand Rapids people, whether they're in rural areas or what, they said, you know, like, when my brother has one of his schizophrenic episodes, I want to be able to call someone for help who isn't yes. going to show up as an armed patrol. You know, exactly. it's, it's going to overdose that we want help instead of help. an armed patrol, you know, and so exactly. people get it. People get it. People do. And I always, I keep bringing up Miriam Kaba, um, who's brilliant and a brilliant abolitionist teacher, but she says this thing that it's really resonated with me, which is like, this nation has had 250 years of fully funded experimentation time to get it right if they were going to get it right with the current system of policing. And they have failed miserably. We are not experiencing less harm, less danger, less violence. Yeah. And, and then, you know, then we start these other projects. And they're like, oh, here's $5,000. Why don't you have it all figured out? It's like, no, I'm coming for $250 million. I'm coming for $300 million. I want millions we want to defund the police and so that brings me to my next question which you both have spoken to abolition um, in various ways and i find it a very personal journey to land with abolition right that i'm like uh i think for a lot of people it's like there's the difference between the language and then the lived experience of being an abolitionist and so i wanted to ask you all as detroiters why, what, how, how is abolition important to you? Like, how did you discover it, right? How did you know? Like, when did you know? Like, oh, yes, I'm an abolitionist. And what do you think Detroit is uniquely suited to do in terms of abolition? Either one of you can jump in there. Okay, okay, great. I'm gonna do it. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, Do it. Yeah, I mean, every, every the whole time y'all were just talking, I was just like, it could all be so simple. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd rather make it hard. <laughs> okay, period. Um, yes. But yeah, so I feel like when I first got introduced to abolition, it was reading Asada's autobiography. Mm -hmm. And this idea that I was left with after reading that book that everything matters. Everything is political everything that we do every choice we think we make is actually determined by these systems that we live under that oppress us that control our every move um okay. and the idea that even when we think we're making a choice we actually aren't really making a choice or we are i guess we are making choices and also how much of those choices do we have agency in right that's right um, and so i think 
that book is what got me thinking about abolition and and I don't know that she even ever really used the word abolition in that book that I can recall now, but like, you know, it just got mm-hmm. me thinking about like, okay, what if this didn't exist? Like she's saying it all like revolution. Like what if it just all went away, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I think another moment, I think that really solidified, like this is, I am an abolitionist. I am committed to the work of abolition every day uh, was this direct action I participated in in Chicago in 2015 or 2016 uh, for the International Association of the Chiefs Police Conference. Um, So this conference, all the police chiefs (laughs) from all over the world, like Israel and everywhere, comes for these fucking conferences. And this one (laughs) in Chicago, Barack Obama was speaking at, it was huge. Um, And we uh, did a huge direct action, coordinated direct action and blocks off like all the entrances basically or at least each side of the entrances to this huge convention center um in chicago and it was my first time participating in direct action like that it was my first time like locking up with people like i was in a lockbox you know for hours on the street it was my first time getting arrested for an action it was my first it was so many that i experienced there it was my first byp 100 direct action um it was my first time i got trained by blackout collective which now i'm on that whole trajectory of learning to love and be in direct action practice was because of that action too. Um, but during that action, it's something about the energy that direct action makes you feel, especially mm. when you're doing it with other black folks or you're doing it with people you love, people who like clearly care about this, right? Like from the chants right. and songs to just the way people are acting with each other, caring for each other from the moment yes. that we deployed to the moment that we got out of jail at four o'clock the next morning, right? Like, all of that to me exemplified the type of work I wanted to be doing until we got free. Like, I'm like, this is, I'm here for this right now. Like, let's fucking go. (laughs) Let's go. Um, So yeah, I think that those were a couple of my truly defining moments of like, there's another world possible, you know, started reading James and Grace Lee Boggs. I'm a forward member of the Boggs Center now and like thinking about revolutionary theory and am I a revolutionist or just a revolutionary or whatever, you know, like thinking about all these complexities <laughs> of these ideas really yes. to me comes down to what am I practicing? What am I saying yes. that I'm about and how am I showing that in all of my interactions and in the ways that I say I care about people and the ways that I show up for my community. Um, and so, yeah, I, abolition is so important to me and uh, Beautiful. it's, yeah, I think that is my answer to that question. Yeah. that's great and 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 then the other piece of it just if you were to say a few words on like what do you think Detroit is uniquely oh, suited right. is there something that you feel like Detroit is uniquely suited to do yes. in terms of abolition so Amanda spoke to this Detroit creative as I, I'm cussing a lot but you know I'm excited. <laughs> we I'm love excited. that because the I'm end excited. of the world is cuss worthy so okay. mm, that's what, <laughs> you know what I'm saying <laughs> yes okay great so anyways I think that Detroit is creative as fuck Okay, I, I just don't know. I mean, I haven't lived in a lot of other places. Okay, I'm not even 30 yet. Mostly you don't even need to. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I don't need to. I don't need to, to know <laughs> that Detroit is like beautiful, creative, um, innovative, just like these things that, you know, I don't know. It's just like, well, how did you even think of that? Like, how did you even yes. think to do that thing or make art yes. that way? Or, or create that community house. Like, what did that even, you know what I mean? Like, how did you get there? Mm-hmm. And I know Detroiters have gotten there because of decades of systemic 
disinvestment, right? Decades right. of having to figure it out themselves, having to do shit on their own, having to be creative and innovative. Um, but I think that Detroit is going to show people like what it actually looks like, what community safety could actually look like, what, um, like what those possibility models are for actual self-sustaining community, like to be in a neighborhood. And I don't know that we'll get, you know, scale is a thing, but I know that this possible on blocks, the practice like abolition to practice community safety, to practice self-sufficiency because I've seen it, you know what I mean? And I just know that people will do it. And I know that if there's investment in there, like if the city decides to stop being jackasses, and take away some of the, um, what, how much money does, uh, 300 some million dollars that the police get. Um, and in order to invest in some of these ideas of how we can actually build with our people, uh, that will be unstoppable. So I just think that creativity yes. in, in who Detroit is and what Detroit is, is what's going to suit us for this future of transformative justice of abolition. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Mm. Yes, PG. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Amanda? So Same I, thing. It's your journey to being abolitionist. What do you see Detroit uniquely suited to do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think for me, abolition, it feels really just um, really personal. Like I, yes. I want Black people to have all the elders we're supposed to have. Mm. That's what it comes down to, you know? And I think I, I'm tired of losing aunts and uncles in their 50s and 60s. Yes. Of, you know, of people being shot by police at 19, you know, so whether yes. it's police violence, whether it's just dying of, you know, in childbirth, of, you know, stupid diseases that, you know, you know, come because of, you know, environmental racism and all sorts of social and political conditions, you know, and so we are just so deeply invested in premature death of Black yes. people, trans people, Native people, so many people in our society, and all of us, you know, and of the earth. And so I think if we can figure out, you know, how to shift our abundance into making people thrive, you know, that to me is abolition work. It's the fact that, you know, Mm -hmm. we spend $1.2 trillion a year on prisons in this country and all of the related impacts on society. And it's like, Mm. if we could invest all of that in people's thriving and well-being, my God, <laughs> you know, yes. like, we could actually enjoy watching each other grow old into our 80s and yes. 90s. I want that. I want to watch all of my I friends you. grow old, you know, and so that to me is like deep down the work of abolition and what abolition makes possible in the world that it makes possible. And, mm. uh, you know, like PG is saying, many of those things are becoming possible in Detroit. <laughs> and so um, I see it in the work of a lot of our partners and in our clients. So um, at DJC, we talk about really holding our people's freedom dreams as sacred and helping them translate them into reality. And what that means is groups like a client of ours on the west side of Detroit that came to us because they had bought up 14 homes around their community center. And they asked, you know, like, could we create a community land trust or something to keep this neighborhood affordable for generations? And they're like, right. oh yeah, and we also want to put community solar over the whole thing. Yep. And we want to turn one of the homes into reentry housing for men coming back from prison. And we want a small business corridor, <laughs> you know, along the whole way. And, and, yes. And it, just, yeah, and, and it was this beautiful puzzle. And it was a combined solution for reentry housing, climate justice, neighborhood affordability, all of this. And it's like, it was just the brilliance of community. 
and the brilliance of people who are rooted there who had a dream of what they wanted for themselves and their people. And so, you mm. know, it, it, there's so many of these across the city and, you know, it's powerful to just be in a place where these exist um, and much less support them, you know? So um, yes. that, I just hope that these are the types of things that can ripple out to other places. Beautiful. Ah. See, y'all, my heart feels so full of liberation dreams. It's so good. So we are almost at our close. And I just wanted to ask y'all, we've been doing this segment called Top Culture, where we just name like one little thing that's been that's in the pop culture, that's in the world out there that's helping us get through all this time. And, um, and we'll be super quick with it. You don't have to give a ton of background, but you know, what's something that you're watching, you're listening to, art that you're looking at, right? Something in the culture that is helping you move through this moment. And I will start um, with two things. One is a piece of art that I just purchased. And it was like me being grown up and being like, I buy art now. Um, and I bought a piece of art from an artist named Damon Davis, who I have been following and loving forever. Um, and it's called Crack Eight. And it's a bust of a black man's face with a portion out as if he's been shot, but where the portion is out, there's an amethyst. It's filled with this massive piece of amethyst. And it just is this like hopeful piece of like, there's something beyond, um, beyond what you can see beyond this moment. And then my other one is actually PG's singing on Instagram. <laughs> that is my top culture. I am sitting here wanting memories to teach me to see the beauty in the world through my own eyes. It's every single day, I'm like, did PG post a new song? Like, are we gonna get our spirits right? But I know I saw it clearly through your eyes. Those are my two top cultures. So now I'll pass it to PG because I'm like, <laughs> you as a leader oh in God. top culture. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. What are things that are getting so you through? Um, yeah, singing is a big thing. Uh, so something that has been getting me through is music, truly. Um, yeah. And just being open to learning new things. So I don't know, I started playing the drums. I just, you know, I started taking drumming mm. lessons. It's something I've wanted to do since I was a kid was learning how to play a drum set. And now I'm doing it with like this bomb ass black woman drummer as my teacher. And I feel so just happy to be doing that, you know? I started learning mm. Arabic, you know, just like learning. <laughs> okay. It's like, I'm just trying it's to. It's relevant. You know, getting tattooed up with my friends, like those that like mm. just, I just want to do things that push me, that challenge me, that get me to like where I actually want to be because yeah, end of the world's coming, you know, I'm trying to make some shit shake. Um, That's right. But honorable mentions to uh, Beautiful Chorus. I think I sent oh, you yay. one of their songs. Like, Fantastic Beautiful Fungi. Chorus is like, <laughs> yes. so the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, that like gets me through. Um, so yeah, music and all the things, learning and shit. Thank you. And what about for you, Amanda, anything? So mine are both of you singing on Instagram. Oh, <laughs> swoon. <laughs> really, really. Um, we got to together. We got to figure out singing together. OMG, <laughs> duet. Okay. Yes. Um, there's this incredible Detroit mural artist, Sydney James, and I love oh, Sydney's yes. work. 
And Sydney just put up a new mural last month in the North End of our friend Halima Cassells. And oh yes, it's gorgeous. Um, yeah, it's girl with a deep earring, um, massive mural. And so I love driving down the street and seeing Halima's giant face <laughs> staring yes. down at us um, and honoring the North End neighborhood. And then the other thing, I am going to show my age, but TikTok. <laughs> so, <laughs> TikTok is, the TikTok is quite it. entertaining. Do you make TikToks, Amanda? The what? Do you make TikToks? Um, I made one. Right now it's set to private. I have not made my debut yet. But <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. I got to Maybe see we that. can invite you out of the TikTok <laughs> closet. Thank you so much. Um, Y'all, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. And for everyone who's been with us here live, it's amazing to have you. For those who are listening to this later as a podcast, thanks for listening to our show. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Into the World PC. We're on Facebook at Into the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show at patreon.com slash Into the World Show if you're enjoying it. Um, it really helps us get the transcriptions popping. That's one of our our commitments right now. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is write a review on Apple Podcast. Um, we are produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. And any music that we use for our shows comes from either Tunde, Alanaran, or Mother Cyborg. Also, Detroit. All right. Blowing kisses. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye.